Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This Yom Kippur edition of the Pardes Parsha podcast features Rabbi Brent Spodek and Professor Ziva Hassenfeld. For the latest episode of the Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Professor Ziva Hassenfeld and Rabbi Brent Spodek. Brent, I'm so happy to be here with you today and to have um, the opportunity to learn together and to share some of my Torah with you um, about, about some of the stories that we're going to encounter during Yamim Noraim during uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Great. Yeah, there's a lot of really complicated stuff, um, you know, in terms of the Akeda, in terms of all of the uh, readings we do for the holidays. Before we jump into the Torah, maybe we should just let folks know who we are. Absolutely. So, Ziva, who are you? <laughs> That's a deep question, but uh, um, who am I? That's the question of the season, uh, but I'll hide behind titles. Um, <laughs> most importantly, I'm a Pardes alum. I was there 06, 07, and then again 07, 08, uh, where I really did some of my most uh, profound Torah learning. And then I taught uh, Tanakh for a long time in schools. And then I went to uh, become a researcher. And now I do classroom research and I am a professor of education at Brandeis University. Who are you, Brent? <laughs> uh, well, I am also a Pardes alum. I was there uh, what feels like a million years ago. I was there 2000, 2001. And I'm delighted to be back at Pardes as uh, one of the North American faculty fellows. And when I'm not doing that, I'm the community rabbi up in Beacon, New York, about 80 miles north of Manhattan. And in addition to being the rabbi uh, there, I do a lot of work with couples preparing for marriage, um, particularly on emotionally intelligent communication. And when I'm not rabbiing to the congregation or to the couples getting married, I spend a lot of time outdoors and I'm very invested in um, uh, practices of heat dut and finding the divine out in the forest. But all of that is for a different moment because this moment we're we're barreling along full steam ahead into the Yamim Noreen, right? We've obviously got Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur and then Sukkot. And uh, Ziva, you and I were talking before just about some of the complicated dynamics in the uh, the liturgy and the readings for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and how some of the dynamics between, particularly between the Akedah and Yonah play out, say for Yonah, the, the book of Jonah. And I know you've got a lot of uh, thoughts on how these fit together. And I'm hoping you might just be able to walk us through uh, how you see these things connected. Absolutely. So Yonah is actually one of my favorite, favorite, favorite um, stories in Tanakh. And I love teaching and I love learning it with my kids. I love, um, I love the way that there's just so much nuance. And so what I want to bring to your attention, and I want you to come with me on this front, is um, something interesting, right? There's a lot of, now the Torah uses dramatic irony throughout, and sometimes it's not even clear when it does, right? What is, what do we know that, that the personalities in the Torah don't know? Uh one interesting, um, and it does this both explicitly and through, um, through literary devices and imagery, but one really interesting point in the book of Jonah and Sefer Yonah um, is at the end in the four, so it's, all, it's a short book, right? There's only four chapters 
and Yonah, God gives Yonah a message. He's a prophet to bring, and he doesn't bring it, and that doesn't work out, and he's in a fish, and he does bring it, and then it seems like all is good. He brings a message. He tells Nineveh to change their ways, and they change their ways, and we should end on a positive note, but the fourth chapter, Perik Dalit, tells the story of Yonah being really upset, and in Yonah being upset, we find something out that we actually, we, even the audience, never heard about. So can I take you inside? Yeah, please, let's go. Where are we going? So we're going to the first and second verse of the fourth chapter of Sefer Yonah. Okay, let me uh, get over there. Give those good moments, give a good uh, shout out to the folks at Safaria. Thanks for making absolutely everything accessible. All right, so the end of uh, Paratalan? The beginning. Ah, the beginning. Okay. So yeah. Nineveh spared, and we should have a happy ending. Now, just for our audience, remind us, this is the story that we're reading at Mincha on Yom Kippur. But we sure. found out we find out that actually Yonah's not so happy, but Yera El Yonah Ra'agdola, and this terrible uh Ra'ab uh, upsetness ascended on him, but Yicharlo, and he was just he was filled with fury. Palel El Adonai, and he prays to God, Yomar, and he says this. And here's where we find out something that we never knew. Ana Adonai, hello, Zeh Devari, Ad Hayiti Al Adamti, Al Ken Kidamti Livra Tarshisha. Isn't this what I said? Right? Isn't this what I said? Isn't this what my word was when I was, uh, when I, when I, when you first met me in chapter one, when I was on my land and you told me to do this. But what's so interesting, Brent, is that uh, we never heard Yona say anything. Right? Yes. But, so, yeah. oh, sorry, no, go ahead. You go no, ahead. No, go, go, go. We never hear Yona say anything here. In Safer Yonah, but there's um, uh, the, the the prophet Yonah appears before Safer Yonah, right? Because the prophet Yonah, uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, was the basically the in-house prophet for Yeroboam. Yeah, um, the the uh, sort of I think of Yeroboam as the nationalist king. He wasn't so pious. He didn't do so much that was pleasing to God, and um, but he united in the kingdom, he enlarged the territory, and he managed to stay on the throne for, I think it was like 40-something years, a long time. And so I wonder if possibly, and I, I don't know this, but I wonder if what uh, Yonah Hanavi is referring to in Sefer Yonah actually didn't happen in Sefer Yonah, but happened in the prequel um, in uh, somewhere in Malachi. That's super interesting. That's super interesting, right? So maybe, right, maybe this, when, when, when Yonah quotes himself, maybe there is somewhere that he's actually referencing. Um, so I want to draw our attention to exactly what he says, right? He essentially says, right, Right. I, he basically says to God, I knew how this was going to go down, right? I, I know that you are a gracious and forgiving God and that you are actually not going to... Uh, destroyed in a bay. And so, and, and, and so upset is Yoda that he wants his life to be taken. And so I'm going to ask two classic questions, but I hope that I can offer you a perhaps um, innovative answer. 
So the classic mm -hmm. questions, right, are um, why was Yonah so sure Nineveh was going to be saved? Right? How did he know? He's claiming he knew from the beginning. And of course, the second classic question, even if he was so sure that Nineveh was going to be saved, that they were going to do tshuva, repent from their bad ways, and then God was going to spare them, isn't that, a, isn't that a triumphant story? Isn't that a lovely story? Why is he so upset? Yeah, um, it's, I've got a thought of where to go, but I'm, the way I often think about it, though it's certainly not the only way as to why Yonah wasn't so happy about this turn of events. Um, uh, and this is maybe coming, uh, I, I recognize the dangers of eisegesis here, that what I'm doing is, is reading the present back into, uh, back into the text. But I think about, you know, one of the, certainly what I think of as one of the major tensions in Jewish life today, right, between uh, outward looking Judaism and inward looking Judaism. When and how and in what ways do we think about Judaism is for the Jews and what we're worried about is the future and the well-being of Am Yisrael? And what and in what ways are we uh, trying to be an Orlegoyim and what we're doing is focused out to the world, right, trying to bring some sort of uh, light or Torah more broadly. And to my mind, and this is why I was thinking about the, the business with Yeroboam, that this is some of the tension for Yonah. Yonah, I would, I, I would think that he's upset about Nineveh being spared because Nineveh is the capital of the oppressive regime against the Jews, right? And he's, he's, he's not that invested in those people, right? It's a, this is a fraught and loaded um, uh, analogy. I don't want to take it too far. But Kivyachol, I think of it as a prophet a Jewish prophet in Berlin in, you know, 1936, let's say, saying, I'm not worried about these people um, doing tshuva. I'm not worried about bringing the Torah to these people. I'm worried about the Jews. But actually what God is saying to him is, no, no, you got to be worried about everyone. It's not, I'm not just for the Jews. Um, I, God, I'm not just for the Jews. So Yonah, you've been following the path of Yeroboam, and that's great. And he's done great work in the Northern Kingdom. Great. Thumbs up. But the Torah isn't just for the Jews. And I, the Holy One, need you, Yonah, to bring the Torah, not just to not the Jews, but to after the enemies of the Jews, because they are the ones who need the Torah the most. Good. Okay. So I think <laughs> all those answers work. And I'm going to take us in another direction. But I think like, yeah. Great, please. Like the answer, right? That, that don't, don't be so, um, right, myoptics even, your sense of like, this is all about our own inner uh, psychology and trauma, and there's actually a political reality. Yes, yeah. and I'm going to read it about our uh, personal psychology. So, <laughs> so to do so, I have to go to a different story in Yamim Noraim, which is the Akedah, which is the binding of Isaac, right? And um, we read that, but we don't read the exact first thing that happens after the Akedah. Brent, do you know what happens right after? Uh, Sarah dies? Yes. <laughs> okay, now I'm gonna right. pause us because sometimes our background knowledge, as we call it in education, actually prevents our experiential um, capacity to hold the text. I confess so, I get nervous when you talk about experiential learning and the Akedah. That one I might prefer to encounter purely theoretically, but please go on. Um, 
yeah, we won't we won't combine your <laughs> talents with uh, fire building. Um, Rashi, right? Rashi yeah. and the Madrashic tradition, which I'm going to take us inside in a moment, connect Sarah's death after the Akedah to the Akedah. Okay. Okay. So Great. that's very, very both obvious, right? Because it's and so not obvious. Exactly. Why? So, so help me out. Why? Why is it both obvious and not obvious? Well, I mean, it's it would seem to be obvious in that for a mother learning about the near death or you know, depending how it's played out in the midrashic tradition, the imagined death of her son. If there's news that could literally kill someone, right? It's not hard to imagine that that sort of traumatic experience is exactly the sort of thing that could take someone's life, right? It's not not being hyper-literal, but it's not hard to imagine, an, particularly an older person, literally having a heart attack and dying on hearing of hearing that their husband almost killed their child. But it's not obvious because the text doesn't say that. It just says, uh, I forget the exact language, but I think it's just Yimot Sarah, right? Sarah died. Right, but Tamot Sarah, she just dies, right? There's no reason necessarily to connect it. So there are three versions actually of the Midrash, right? Okay. That say that Sarah's death, right? So just, just so that, um, just to review. Yeah, yeah, please. Ultimately, we want to answer a question about Yona. I've taken us into to Sarah and the Akedah, and you're going to just hold my hand and walk with me, right? I, whither thou goest, I shall go. Excellent. Okay, so now I want to ask a new question, which is why why would Sarah die right after the Akedah? And we have three versions of a Midrash, okay? In All two right. versions of the Midrash, there's a story where Satan tricks Sarah, right? And as, says, as he does. Right? And says that Yitzhak is dead. Or pretends to be a very visibly traumatized Yitzchak. Now, I would argue that these versions of the Midrash, two out of the three, provide an obvious answer to how the Akedah could have caused Sarah's death, mm -hmm. right? Of course, it's a relatively primitive, tragic irony, Sarah, right? Very like, she, very uh, Romeo and Juliet, right? Right, right. Sarah dies not from the Akedah per se, but from the misinformation, right? From Satan's trickery. Right, a tragic misunderstanding. Exactly. Okay, fine. We could we could take that. But here's what I want to draw our attention to. The oldest version of the Midrash found by Yikra Rabba okay. doesn't add a character. There's no Satan. Uh -huh. In this version, it's Yitzhak himself who returns to Sarah. And there is no misinformation. And yet somehow it still causes her death. Will you come inside this text with me? Absolutely. Excellent. So now we're in... Three versions of the Midrash. Now we're in the version Vayikra Rabba. Okay. Right? And 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 there's not we're not gonna get our primitive tragic irony. We're gonna get something actually much more raw. Great. Okay, let's go. The Midrash says this. Tedasha Ken. Know this. Shachazar Yitzchak at Salimo. When Yitzchak returned to his mother, Amralo, Anhayit Bari. And she said to him, Where have you been, my son? Amarla, Nitalani Avivah, Lani Harimba Harida, Tani Vekaot Vahel, Lani La Rosh Harachad, Uvanu Mizbeah, Visidar, 
right? So in great detail, explains yeah. exactly where he's been up to like the details, like, yeah, my father got the wood and he tied me up to it, right? No whole right. It's almost exactly the language of the of the Tanakh, just in right. the uh, first person. Right. He keeps going, right? Yeah. Right. And he takes out the knife. So imagine you think your kid's been at a play date. I'm going to tell you this, right? Dafka with his father, not just at a play date, but with his father. Right, on an outing with his father. I'm not going to translate, but that's going to be our key word. And the angels, had it not been that the angel said to him, please don't send out your hand on this. I would have already been slaughtered. Yeah. No trickery, right? This is Yitzhak telling his mother exactly what happened and yeah. standing in front of him. And she repeats, wait, had it not been, right? Whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Had it not been for the angel, you would have already been slaughtered. He says, yeah. Yeah. At that very moment. Meta, she dies. So it's tempting hearing this midrash and reliving the truthful, terrifying details of the Akedah, right? Imagining Sarah hearing them for the first time that she dies of shock, like you suggested, right? That this is about betrayal. This is about like just a feeling of shock. But I want to, I want to offer you, Bren, hear what you think following Aviva Zornberg, that the text of the Midrash can't hold that reading. Actually, this version of the Midrash, there's no shock. And I'll tell you why I think so. And I'll tell you why no shock. Why? I would think there's, why no shocks? I would think, you know, on the face of it, a a, a kid of any age says, hey, mom, dad took me up a mountain, tied me up and almost killed me. Had an angel not intervened, I'd be dead. That would seem on the face of it to be shocking, uh, a shocking uh, update. Totally. Except for she gives this very, very um, cogent and clear response, right? And what she says back to her son, she doesn't say, wait, your father did what? <laughs> God asked for what? That's not what it's upsetting to her. What she repeats back to her son, what she asks about, what after hearing is the case, right, is, if it were not for divine intervention, Yitzhak would have been dead, right? So what I want to suggest, focusing on that word, ilule, is that what yeah. causes Sarah's death, according to this version of the Midrash, focusing on what she says back to Yitzhak, is not betrayal by her husband or trauma, but rather what she focuses on and what she repeats back, what when confirmed by Yitzhak, causes her to die is simply the truth of the fragility of Yitzhak's life and the tr- and the fragility of life in general. That is, I would argue that according to this Madrash, Sarah dies not from being overwhelmed by the confrontation with by by the confrontation with her husband or with God or with um, the fact that they betrayed her, but rather from a simple fact that we all deal with on Yamim Noraim which is that we're always just a hairbreadth away 
between life and death. Yeah, it's um, right. Uh, I, I'm wanting to, I, I'm, I'm, I'm captivated by this reading and I'm wanting to translate Ilule here as, I recognize this is not the plain translation, but had it not been for the radical contingency, right? You'd be I dead already. I love that. Yes, put that right? translation in. <laughs> I will I will I'll let Safaria know, right? But radical here in the sense of, I don't mean radical like I'm way out there, but actually at the root, right? That our lives are so contingent. And, you know, we can think about it both in terms of um, just how we got here, right? Had, had not that particular sperm connected with that particular egg, I wouldn't be me, you wouldn't be you. The fact that I am who I am is contingent on, you know, a particular combination of our parents' DNAs. And then our life going through the world is, is radically contingent. And I'm, I, I'm reminded here actually of a, of a bit of Torah that I learned from uh, a, a different uh, member of the Parnes faculty, one of my teachers and someone I admire tremendously, uh, Mishammer Kasoy. And, but I need to tell you before what she taught me, I need to tell you when she taught me this. Great. Um, so this was um, years after I had left Pardes. Um, my wife was very ill and thank God she's cured, she's healthy, she's in great shape now. But there was a period there uh, where she had leukemia and she was in the hospital and it really wasn't clear how this was gonna play out. And I was painfully aware, I mean, at the time I was in my late thirties, I had, we had two young children and the radical contingency of life was my every waking moment. And at, um, uh, at some point, Misha actually came uh, to visit, which I was so grateful for. And she shared this little bit of Gemara in Brachot uh, that goes, Tanya Abba Binyamin Omar, we learned in a Brita that Abba Binyamin said, if our eyes had ability to see, right? No creature would be able to stand, right? Because of the demons. And my theology isn't such that I actually, actually think there are demons as in characters surrounding it. But in the sense that there are dangers, right? Thousands of dangers at every side, right? And is, is very, very conscious, uh, very much part of my consciousness. And this sense, and to what you're saying about Sarah, right, this like painful, radical recognition that everything I love either can be taken in an instant, right, if it had been my, you, my son who had been killed, or perhaps already has been taken in terms of, uh, you know, my trust in my husband. But everything I experienced that I think is rock solid is actually not rock solid. All of which is to, a roundabout way of saying, what I'm hearing you saying about Sarah there is that actually our lives are always radically contingent. And we have an illusion at times that things are rock solid, but that's actually just an illusion. Everything is contingent. Everything could vanish in an instant. Not a that wasn't a tangent at all, Brent. That was actually uh, beautiful and deep. And thank you for sharing. Um, thank God that your wife is okay. Exact 
illustration of what I believe Sarah was confronting, right? That of course, but we need to live with the fiction, right? That we're white, you can't be in that, in that, um, you can't, even though we all know that, right, it's just a string that holds, right. we have to operate under the illusion that it's rock solid because facing that contingency is itself could kill us if we did it for too long, too much. I, I think, I think the key there is the too much. Um, because I think part of what the Yamim Noreim are about, and specifically Yom Kippur, yeah, yeah, is about yeah. saying, like, yes. listen, folks, yes. your time here is limited. And um, so on the one hand, you can't operate every moment in the fear that I could die, my children could die, my wife could die, like, we'd be paralyzed. But I'm thinking there's a story, you know, the actor Steve Martin, the uh, you know, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? He's got a story um, somewhere where he talks about his relationship with his father and about how his father had wanted to be an actor, was never successful, and then his son obviously became, you know, a, a major a major actor. And um, he, he wrote this really beautiful piece about going and visiting his father really in the last days of his life. And... Um, uh, the hospice nurse who was taking care of the elder, uh, Mr. Martin, said, this is when it all happens. And so Steve Martin goes into his father, goes into his father, with whom he's had this difficult relationship. Um, and his father, you know, he says to his father, what do you want at this moment? And his father says, I want to cry, but I can't. And Steve Martin says, what do you want to cry about? And the elder Mr. Martin says, for all the love I was given and couldn't return. And Steve Martin said, he has this beautiful line that I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of, it's as if after a lifetime of being out of sync with each other, in these waning hours, our footsteps finally aligned and the love could flow, through, flow freely between us. And I think about like, on the one hand, you're completely right. Like, we would be a caricature of neurotic Jewish parents if we operated out of the fear of death and said, no, kids, you can't, you, you can't ride your bike, you can't get in a bus, you can't go for a hike, you can't do anything. But I think when it comes to love, when it comes to our relationships, I think there is a value in like having a little bit of that fear of like, I don't know that I get another chance to tell my mother that I love her. I don't know that I get another chance to tell my kid I love them and that I should actually be reckless, so to speak, in, in pouring that love out because there's no guarantee I get to do it another time. Yes, so, so this is what I wanna sort of, this is what I wanna suggest. And uh, let me know what you think. I wanna suggest, right, that if we read Sarah's death as not a death out of trauma or betrayal, but actually a death that could, that. That, that speaks to all of us, which is, is being overwhelmed with elule, that our life hangs by a string. I think that we can read that back in the Yonah too, right? That he, that uh -huh. actually isn't political. Actually, okay. what he's upset about, his desire to die is the same as Sarah's in the sense of like, when you, exactly what you were saying, when you spend too much time contemplating the elule, the contingency of life, that it's it, it it is too much and it can overwhelm us, and uh, and I want to sort of right. So if you come with me, if you hold my hand 
through those two stories and say, okay, so the two two of the big stories that we read on your Mim Naraim are about are about how overwhelming the contingency of life is, how overwhelming it is to realize that we are always elule, one little step away from it all being taken or all being done for us. And so, and, and these stories are warning us that it's too much to contemplate that all the time, right? So, so I wanna suggest, and, and, and this is sort of the last point that I wanna make is that the beauty, Brent, of our tradition and our, our uh, holidays and the cycle of holidays is that perhaps what Yamim Noraim are doing is creating this ritualized way for us to face it together, to face the fragility of the contingency of life, right? And that these stories are reminding us Sarah dies from it, Yona wants to die from it, right? And so it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not just simple to, to face the contingency of life, right? We have to do it in a ritualized way. We have to do it in a community, right? And so that when on, right, on Musaf, when we read Natana Tokef, when we read, right, Adam Yasodome Afar Vesofola Afar, people come from dust and end in dust, right? And we, and all of this is about facing our contingency, right? We do it together because Sara and Yona serve as a warning against considering it for too long, right? And so we, as a community, know too well that we have to support each other when we, confront and meditate on the fragility of life. And that's really what we're doing on Yamim Nora'im. We're supporting each other in allowing ourselves in a healthy dose to confront it so that we do do that radical love, so that we do call our moms and we do do everything we wanna do, but also so that we don't get stuck, right? And paralyzed. I, I, I think you're completely right. I wanna offer a friendly amendment though, that the, that, uh, I think the, the point you're making is actually heightened by the practices of Yom Kippur, which are in some ways a, uh, like a, a, a safe enactment of our own death, right? We don't eat, we don't drink, right? We don't, um, we don't have sex, which is how new life gets generated, right? We don't, if we didn't, if we carried the practices of Yom Kippur too far, we would literally die, right? Without food, water, intercourse, right? Life would end. But I think the I think part of what Yom Kippur is doing is saying, okay, we're going to give you a safe container to experience and meditate on your own mortality, because one day you won't have any more food, any more water, any more intimate relations, right? And you're dressed in what are tantamount to tachrichim, right, with the kittle, with, right? But I think that actually one of the dangers of um, of synagogue life is. None of us want to do that, right? The idea of confronting a mortality is so um, overwhelming, we all want to turn away from it. And one of the dangers of synagogue life, I mean, everyone knows the joke, you know, Goldberg and Stern go to synagogue, Stern goes to synagogue to talk to God, Goldberg goes to synagogue to talk to Stern. And that collectively, it's actually a, a difficult thing, I think, in many synagogues to not get sucked into the conversation, small talk, catching up. You haven't seen people all summer. You haven't seen people, depending on the synagogue, since last Yom Kippur. Um, and actually try and stay in that place of contemplating, if I face the fact that my time is limited, how does that change how I want to live? But the first step is facing it and not, not taking the, the, um, 
all of the things we do to, to blunt the force of what the tradition is telling us, right? But actually lean into that and, and be a little terrified. Being too terrified is not good. A little bit of terror might be a useful spiritual resource. Yeah, and I think how beautiful it is that uh, that we have the structure to be terrified. I mean, to a lot, right? Because these stories remind us why too much, but like what you're saying, right? Um, that we that if we do it right, Yom Kippur is a chance because we do have to confront it. Absolutely. Um, and I think if we don't, if we try to avoid it, we confront it in other ways, right? You probably know more about this than me because you spend more time thinking about uh, mental health than I do. <laughs> but I imagine just having lived life that if we don't ever think about it, we find ways to assist ourselves in not thinking about it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Well, Ziva, this is uh, incredibly powerful thinking about Yona uh, and uh, Sarah following the Akedah as linked and pointing to all of us taking a, a safe uh, journey into the contingency of, of life. Not too much that we shut down, not too little that we think there'll always be another moment to, to make it right, but just that little bit that Yona experienced, that Sarah experienced tragically, um, and God willing, we can all experience in a in a healthy and generative and chuvadic uh, sort of way over the next couple of weeks. Brent, thank you so much for learning with me. It's such a, it's such a schut and uh, it really just lifts me up to get to share Torah with you and to get to hear your Torah. Same here. I'm so grateful for all of this and I'm very much looking forward to learning more with you. Me as well. Thank you, Brent. Thank you, Ziva. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of the Pardes Parsha podcast.